right, friends. Greg Kokel here in Santa Reason, and I just realized I've done something silly, um, and that is both of my broadcasts are scheduled are 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 uh, taped on the same day, Tuesday, but each hour is delivered at a different time. One on Wednesday, and the other one on Friday. That means when I have a event on Thursday, and I don't mention it in the first hour, it's kind of dumb to mention it in the second hour. So, just saying, any of you guys who go to Baylor, you missed me, because I was there yesterday <laughs> at the Oso Logos uh, meeting on uh, Thursday evening, and in the afternoon, I was also at the Christian Legal Society doing a Q&A. Now, I don't know how that went, because it hasn't happened yet, but by the time you hear this, it will have been over, finished, and too bad, so sad. But my bad in this case. However, Alan Schleeman will be at Calvary Chapel in Centralia, Washington, on Friday, September 30th, and Sunday, October 2nd. So there you go. Got a lot of time to plan for that. Let's see. Robbie Lashua will be at Moon Bay Valley Church in Phoenix, Sunday, October 2nd. Sunday, October 9th, speaking on why God allows evil. That's a month away. And uh, I got tons of stuff coming up in October. I'm going to be gone almost the whole month, as it turns out. But September 23rd and 24th, Orange County, Reality Christian Apologetics Conference. So you can still sign up for that. We still got room in the main auditorium. Last I heard, we had about 1,500 signed up. It's hold 2,000, but we're going to push that. In two weeks, we're going to get another 500. So if you get in late, you're going to have to uh, go to the gym or somewhere and watch on TV. It's just the way that works. But uh, So go to realityapologetics.com to sign up for Orange County, September 23rd and 24th, for Seattle, October 14th and 15th. And that's filling up rapidly. That one will fill up. We're over 800 there, and the venue only holds 1,200. And <laughs> we're, what, six weeks away? And then in uh, Minneapolis... November 11th and 12th, uh, about 500 there. Last year we had 3,300, 3,300. And we're, let's see, September, October, November, we're like nine weeks away, and that's filling up. So the website is realityapologetics.com. And all of our reality events, Orange County, Seattle, Minneapolis this fall, and then Dallas and Philadelphia and Augusta, Georgia, next spring are all listed there, all the information, all the speakers. Uh, we get focusing on a, 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 a real pressing issue, and that's deconstruction. I should say so-called deconstruction. This word has different meanings. And uh, deconversion. People are deconstructing their Christianity, and they are deconverting and going elsewhere. So we're going to respond to that. I'm going to jump right in here and go to Saskatchewan, Canada, and talk with Caleb. Caleb, welcome to the show. Glad to have you on board. Oh, thank you. How are you, Greg? I'm doing all right. Are you on speaker? I am not, no. Oh, okay. All right. You're pretty clear. Go ahead. Unless okay, you're going to start yeah. doing any some of boot stuff with me up there in Canada. <laughs> no, no, don't worry. All right. I won't do that. All right. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I guess my question has to do with, um, 
I guess for some context, my older brother uh, came out as uh, bisexual a few years back, and I come from a Christian household, and their advice was to just accept it and uh, kind of allow him to find himself back to God. Wait, did you say uh, he's transsexual? Is that what you said? He was bisexual, and now recently he just came out as transgender. He identifies as a woman now. Okay, okay. So I was just wondering if you could, uh, yeah, give me any advice on how to kind of minister to him and to my family who think I should just accept it and not really say anything. Uh, I'm pausing here because, and you can hear me drumming on the table, because <laughs> this is such a hard situation. Um, I was talking with Amy a little bit during the break, anticipating your call, and part of what I said to her is, she heard me sigh, like, oh, and my heart was going out to you in the sigh, and my it was also kind of an anguish in the sigh, and it was also a frustration in the sigh. And what I said to him, with her, <laughs> what <laughs> that was kind of an unfortunate misstep given our topic. What I said to Miss Amy Hall, my female colleague, was her. As I said, you know, there's just no silver bullet here. Hmm. And and I I like silver bullets. I like, <laughs> you know, here's the thing, here's the answer, here's the issue. Now, persuasion is one one thing. You, you, you can't control persuasion. That's hmm. the Holy Spirit's job, right? But right. but there are certain issues you you realize. Okay, I got this, and I know how to approach it. And I know what to say, and how this is going to work out. At least they may disagree, but they can agree to disagree. Whatever. This issue, this is fraught with all kinds of danger, because hmm. there's massive confusion in the culture, especially in Canada, and that's not a put down. Hmm. You, you guys know you're just further ahead. You're more progressive than we are. Right. We're always playing catch-up ball with you guys, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, it's just harder for you guys. All right? I get it. Mm. Um, and so it makes it more difficult in your larger community because the community is, is in not just the community in general, but the political community and political environment is much more mm. aggressive about these kinds of things. Okay? Now, you have an advantage, and that is that your family sounds to me like, in general, are committed Christians, but you're wondering about the advice that they're giving about how to deal with your brother. Yeah. Okay, and so um, that's a plus. So, in a sense, Mm. as I understand it, theologically, you guys are, you know, your family in general, you're on the same page with them. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, in general, yeah. All right, so here I'm going to go. I got here's my kind of a, a stock phrase that I adopted last year because it was the title of a book, and the title of the book was taken from a title of an essay written in 1973 by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I don't know if you know who he is, but almost nobody I talk to today nowadays, and I mention his name, knows who he was. Is that name familiar to you? It is not, no. Okay. Well, he's a Nobel laureate, he's not alive anymore, who spent 10 years in the Russian gulag, and he wrote about it. 
He wrote a number of books, Cancer Ward, A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, and The Gulag Archipelago, and he exposed the Soviet system, for which they finally expelled him in 1973. But at the, at the time, he wrote an essay, which was, and he's one of these giants of the 20th century. This is why it's sad that he gets so little press anymore. But, uh, but the title of the piece was Live Not By Lies. And so there's subsequently a book by the same title that trades on his advice regarding our culture right now. Rod Dreher is the author. We've t talked about having him on board, but haven't, we haven't interviewed him yet. But uh, the, 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 the operational principle here that Dreher is trading on coming from Alexander Solzhenitsyn is that as a Christians living in an increasingly vile culture that has totalitarian tendencies, all right? Hmm. We have to live by the truth. We cannot be forced, we, we have to refuse to be forced into affirming lies. Hmm. Now, uh, that doesn't mean we have to be political activists. That doesn't mean that we have to boycott or we have to uh, march in the streets necessarily. I mean, different people are going to respond different ways. But the, the, the bare minimum here, and Solzhenitsyn is getting it, is that we live lives of integrity in the things we say and believe and affirm. So we don't affirm falsehoods. That's what this movement requires affirming falsehoods. And this is where at Stand to Reason, our approach has been regarding names and pronouns, is that names are, are conventions. People can be named all kinds of goofy things. There's lots of people, lots of parents make up names nowadays, all kinds of boutique names, all right? So people can, we can call people whatever they want to be called. That's a convention, all right? And I think to stress and to, to say, well, well, I'm not going to call you Cheryl when I know your real name is Bill, it just sounds mean-spirited, okay? Hmm. So we, we have—our uh, view is that you, you call a person the name that they identify for themselves because names are chosen and they're conventional, right. and many of them are androgynous. Even Mike, hmm. you know, the word Mike, girls are named Mike— you know, yeah. or Pat, you know, uh, Cheryl. Actually, Cheryl's also a male name. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> I can think of it. Cheryl, Cheryl. I can't think of the person. But anyway, there's a celebrity. But however, um, uh, Brenda or Edith, uh, probably not. Those don't, those don't travel. Right. Well, mm. but if people want to be called Brenda or Edith because they view themselves as women, I'm not going to fight about that. What I can't do, and this is the other side of it, is we're not going to affirm something that's false. We're not going to call a person, uh, refer to a person as a woman when that person is a man. And not only is it a matter of personal integrity, it is a matter of loving that individual. Because a person who's transsexual is broken, mm. and they know it. 
This is why they say things like, I'm a woman in a man's body. That's not brokenness? Of course it's broken. Something's wrong. But they think the body's wrong, and so they're going to change the body. But we know better. The body's not wrong. The body's perfectly healthy. What's wrong is the way people view themselves. When I say wrong, I think it's mistaken. I'm not making a moral judgment at this point. I'm just saying it's mistaken. That's where the confusion is. And because there is this brokenness and this confusion, people who are transsexual have, at, I, just, I read the statistic, and within the last 24 hours, I don't remember where it was, but nine times the suicide rates. Nine times. And by the way, that doesn't change after they have the operation if they get one of those, and it doesn't change if they live in another country like Sweden, who's totally sanguine about this kind of stuff. I know what people say, oh, that's because of the you Christians. Mm -hmm. Well, this is nonsense. You can't go—it's everywhere in society, everywhere you turn, there's affirmation, from the government to the educational system to the TV, everything is affirming. Affirming. Are you saying a little band of Christians now are making people kill themselves because they don't—really? No, that isn't it. It's because something inside is not right. And so mm. when we don't cooperate with that by speaking a lie to them, then we are actually acting in a loving fashion. The crowd that is called loving are approving the lie that affects the suicide rate. So, okay, so there's all—I just laid it all on the table. Now, what does that mean for you, Caleb, in Saskatchewan? That means—and if I were in your shoes, I wouldn't—I would not affirm um, in language the transition. I wouldn't call him her. Right. And by the way, you don't address people by the third-person pronouns anyway. Yeah. Hi, him. No, you address them by their names. We refer to them with sexual pronouns when we're talking with other people. And it's the other people that are making the demand. I think the atmosphere in the home should be one of grace and love, and that the love and the grace is not contingent on, on the behavior changing or the self-assessment changing. Behavior is different, actually, because there are behaviors that you don't tolerate in, in, in homes. I mean, that's, that's, like, that's, that's the way homes work. Can't do whatever you want. Now, the criterion are going to differ with different value systems, but, the, but, but I think that the, the, uh, the, the self-assessment or self-identification, that there shouldn't be um, harassment based on that, but not cooperation. And this is what I think, Caleb, you can tell your family. You say, family, I love my brother. We love our brother. That's not going to change. But right. I can't live by a lie. I cannot affirm something that's a lie. And my brother is my brother, not my sister. And that will never change. Mm. So what that does is it puts you in an awkward spot, certainly with your brother, and maybe, <laughs> and maybe with your family. But it, your family are Christian. 
And so the question is, why do we accommodate a lie? Why do we actively accommodate? Not, not, not in a sense, live alongside it, but actively accommodate a lie that from God's perspective is a lie. We're Christians. I can't do that, is what you can say to them. Now, this may put your family against you. And Jesus talks about that in Matthew 10. I have my Bible open to it right now. Uh, in the subheading here, and it says, A hard road before them. <laughs> Verse 16 and following, and the meaning of discipleship. So Jesus says it's, it's going to be hard even with family members. Hopefully you won't run into that. But I, I, my Rx for this thing is just very simply, we live not by lies. We will not be bullied into affirming something that's false. False before God. We need to be gracious and kind and loving and whatever. But, but it's not loving to affirm this lie that is dangerous to the people who believe it. It's dangerous to them. But I don't know about where you're at. I suspect it's the same as California. It's not even legal for professional counselors to try to counsel them otherwise. It's against the law in California, at least at least for minors. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's the same here too. Yeah. So, but uh, that's that's the ones who need it. Minors are the ones who mm-hmm. need the encouragement to develop a healthy self concept one that is consistent with the body that they have, instead of an unhealthy self-concept that's inconsistent with their body and leads uh, to, to um, what's the right word? It's like sickness, you know, uh, pathology. That's the word I was looking at. It's pathological. Now, even saying that word is like, oh, my, bite your tongue. But that it's pathological. That's what it is. You're not saying bite your tongue, but that's the way the culture would respond. How dare you? Really? Okay, so, well, something's wrong. That's why they want to get their bodies changed. I don't know how far along your, your brother has gone in this, but anyway, I uh, uh, back to the original comment, Caleb, uh, no silver bullets. I think there is an, an answer that there is a... MO for us, there's a modus operandi, a, a direction we can go, and simply put, it's to live not by lies, but to live out, in the process of living out the truth, we are living out all of our virtues as Christians as well, all the grace and the kindness and the goodness that is meant to be expressed, but we don't affirm the lie and pretend that that's love, and pretend mm-hmm. that that's goodness, and that's kindness. It's not. Even love needs no, to be definitely. properly theologically informed. So I, I'm not sure. I mean, I've been doing most of the talking, and you've been listening very graciously and patiently. Um, um, what do you think? I Yeah, no, that's very appreciative. Yeah, I guess the biggest struggle I had that you kind of answered was if I should be using um, his new name. He wants to be called Josie now, so... Josie? You seem to have answered that, though, pretty nice. Yeah, Josie. Well, I don't think, I think that's fine for you to do that. I, I don't see any problems with that. And even Josie's, it's, that's androgynous, too. I mean, Josie yeah. could be Joe, hey, Josie, and 
You know, my my son's named Dane, and we call him Dandy. <laughs> yeah, it's just an affectionate thing. So Josie, okay. Even if you wanted yeah. to be called Edith, I would call him Edith. I wouldn't call yeah. her Edith. I would call him Edith. That's your name? That's your name you want to be called? I'll call you by your name. The name you want. Names are conventional. Even though they do have gender, their gender associations with them, I still, you know, I'm not going to fuss about that. Um, and I think that's a that's a legitimate kind of compromise to the circumstance. So you can adjust in a in a in a way that doesn't look mean spirited, but is not affirming a lie. And this is what they want you to do. This the culture. They this is a totalitarian impulse in the culture now because the left has taken over so many portions of our culture, and the left is totalitarian by nature. They want, they want to force you to affirm lies. And this is happening everywhere in both of our cultures. And I think if we make a decision to live not by lies, then we're choosing um, a pro, an appropriate course before God. But it's going to cost us. And that's what Solzhenitsyn said. It's going to cost you. You might want to look at that book, Live Not By Lies. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not a difficult read. But the last third is difficult because in the last, what he's, what Rod Dreher, D-R-E-H-E-R, I think, uh, is doing is he's taking his cue from Soviet, uh, uh, emigrates from former Soviet uh, satellite countries and the former Soviet Union. And they've come to the United States for freedom and they see what's happening here is the same thing that happened there and they're mortified. They're mortified. And I spent... um, Five and a half weeks behind the Iron Curtain in 1976, working with Christians who are who are being persecuted. I wrote about it last year, uh, in 2021. All the series of solid grounds that you can find on our website from January, March, May, July, August, October. It's every other month, so I'm trying to jump the months there. Uh, and you'll see I've got a series of them that's talking about this this very thing. And um, uh, and I talk about my experiences behind the Iron Curtain and see that what they see happening here now is what was happening there then, totalitarianism. And, uh, and it mortifies them, and, and, uh, it, and, and it ought to. Uh, so um, anyway, uh, also last year I read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, and it's just amazing the uh, certain parallels uh, that have are totalitarian in in nature, uh, fascist. So uh, this is where we've just got to, for our personal lives, just say, I, I can't live this way. I'm not going to cooperate with that. But it costs people in that system when they didn't cooperate, and it's going to cost people here in this system if we don't cooperate. And that's what the last, say, one-third or maybe one-quarter of the book chronicles is what the what they suffered? The Christians suffered when they refused to uh, cross the line, and we're going to face it here. And you're going to face it in some measure if you take the advice that I've given you. I'm just warning you in advance. Oh no! Yeah, I'm I'm definitely going to take your advice. So, <laughs> oh good. Matthew ten sixteen and following. Just take a look at it. Yes, sir. All right, brother. 
All right. Thank you so much, Greg. Okay, Caleb. Stay in touch. Maybe a couple months, give me a call and tell me how things are going. Oh, I will. All right, buddy. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Live not by lies. No silver bullet. No magic. No cleverer way to get around all these things. We don't have that option anymore. It is being thrown in our face, and and the culture is demanding that we affirm things that are just, not just false, but are radically inconsistent with the way that God made the world for the purpose of human flourishing. Okay, let's go to break. We'll come back with more calls when I return. You can take Stand to Reason with you through our mobile apps, available for free from the App Store or the Google Play Store. The Quick Reference app gives you short, easily accessible courses on our most popular topics like tactics, homosexuality in the Bible, morality, the story of reality, and many more. The Stand to Reason app has all our latest content available at your fingertips. You can listen to our podcasts, check the blog, and access timely and practical resources. They're free, so download the apps today on the App Store or the Google Play Store and start carrying Stand to Reason with you everywhere you go. If you enjoy our apps, you can help other people find them by rating them on the App Store or the Google Play Store. Do you want to become a more knowledgeable Christian ambassador without sitting through a formal course on apologetics? Well, we've made that possible for you through our STR Quick Reference app. Available for free on iTunes and Google Play, the STR Quick Reference app holds a wealth of information summarizing what you need to know on a range of topics. Learn how to defend the faith, see how other worldviews compare to Christianity, and master the biblical view of morality all through short, engaging videos. Before you know it, you'll be well-versed on a number of important apologetics topics. In addition, the Quick Reference app also includes a Bible with text and audio, as well as some featured STR resources, all to enhance your learning experience. The STR Quick Reference app will equip you to engage in thoughtful conversation about the key issues of life from a classical Christian perspective. Visit iTunes or the Google Play Store today and download the STR Quick Reference app. And if you enjoy the app, make sure you give it a five-star review. Oh, I love that riff. I'm not really a music guy, you know, I don't like a... For some reason, you know, after I became a Christian, I just fell out of that whole pop music scene. You know, I, I like the stuff from the 60s, early 70s. Became a Christian 73. I'm not putting any of that down. My family likes music. My girls listen to lots of different things. I went through a phase where I listened to, to a lot of classical stuff, and I never got tired of that stuff. I should go back to it. But most of the time, I just drive in the quiet, you know. So, uh, but um, that little rift is pretty cool. I like that. And uh, anyway, uh, let's do an o- another open mic call, and uh, let's see what I got here. Okay, how about uh, let's talk with uh, uh, or hear from Dean, Dean French, on, um, on Paul before Caesar. Hello, Greg. Thanks for taking my call. In Acts 27, oh, by the way, the name here is Dean, Dean in Conway, South Carolina. In Acts 27, verse 24, uh, the angel told Paul that, uh, do not be afraid, you must stand before Caesar. 
Did he ever get his chance to stand before Caesar? All right, Dean. My answer is I don't know. Um, but I think there's a qualification here that um, I want to suggest. I'm not sure that the phrase stand before Caesar meant that he had an audience with Caesar himself. Um, I don't know if that's what the phrase means. And, and I, I mean, I've not done any research on this, but does it, it strikes, I mean, think about this. Rome was the first city that had a million people in the city. Then you had the whole Roman Empire. Now, not everybody in Rome was a Roman citizen, but a citizen in Rome, and there were lots of them, and spread out over the whole Roman Empire, had the ability to, quote-unquote, appeal to Caesar. That was the kind of the Supreme Court. There was no satisfaction in the lower court systems, so there was no, I mean, in, in individual cases, people thought they were not being treated fairly or whatever, so as Paul uh, was not being treated in a just fashion, he said, I appeal to Caesar. Now, he was exercising his right as a Roman citizen to go to the highest court of the land to have a decision rendered on his behalf. And he was fully confident that it would be in his favor because even, even when he was in, in, uh, in Israel, when he went before Agrippa, I think, and Agrippa said, well, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, we could let this guy go. And Paul was thinking beyond just his appeal, though. He was looking for an opportunity to go to Italy and to preach there and then hopefully go beyond there to Spain. And he talks about that, I think, in the Book of Romans. But um, So uh, given the expansiveness of the empire and the number of citizens who had the right to appeal to Caesar, d does it seem realistic that the Caesar himself would adjudicate every instance where a person appealed to him? I don't think so. The numbers would be overwhelming. My suspicion is, and I don't know this for sure, my suspicion is that the phrase appeal to Caesar or stand before Caesar means standing before the highest court in the land, Caesar's court, whatever that was. Now, I imagine it would be possible to find that detail out without too much trouble by going online or going to a commentary in this passage and getting some background. Here's my suspicion, though. Uh, standing before Caesar didn't mean standing in the presence of Augustus or Nero or whoever it happened to be. It meant that you stand before, quote-unquote, Caesar, which is Caesar's highest court. This is the last court of appeal. Now, uh, whether Paul ever did that or not, um, we have no historical record of, because Acts ends rather abruptly with Paul um, in Rome and having latitude to move around. I think he's in Rome. I'd have to look more closely at it. But And th the abrupt ending is an interesting detail 
because it says here he stayed two full years, his own rented quarters, welcomed all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with openness unhindered. Um, let's see, I'm reading, that's the last couple of verses. I'm trying to get where the location uh, was, but um, you guys can read it if you like to find out the exact location. I don't know if the location was in Rome itself or not. He does see Jews, um, and they reject his message. Oh, verse 16, when Paul, when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. So, yes, he made it to Rome. And then this describes the circumstances there. It doesn't describe what happens afterwards. That is the disposition of the charges against him. Okay? And maybe they just... I don't know. Now, the angel says, stand before Caesar. So if that phrase means before Caesar's court, I imagine there was some kind of court that he stood before and um, possibly was exonerated. Now, there were it's it allegedly two Roman imprisonments, one early, this one, and then one a couple years later, which is when he was executed. And we just don't have a lot of information there about how that all turned out. But the de- the importance of the rather abrupt ending of Acts 28, where we don't have any more information, why didn't Luke, who wrote Acts, give us more information? And the answer is because nothing else had happened at the time he finished the book. When he finished the book, Paul was there in Rome preaching unhindered. The rest had not transpired yet. That's why he didn't write it, which puts the dating of the book of Acts in the early 60s which also then puts the dating of his first book, Luke's first book, which would be the Gospel of Luke, prior to the book of Acts, because Acts is the second installment of the historical record that Luke wrote. Pretty straightforward when you look at the beginning of Luke and the beginning of the book of Acts. But Luke wasn't the first gospel. Mark was probably the first gospel. That's standard fair, and so that means Mark was written before Luke, which was written before Acts, which was completed while Paul was still in Rome and preaching unhindered. So this gives us an opportunity to a reasonable argument about how to date the Gospels and the time of the Gospels. I, I read somewhere, I just heard, oh, I remember, I was just, I was reading a work of fiction, but in this work of fiction it was talking about these um, the dating the, the of the Gospels, because it, it was a religious setting, and, it, and, and the statements were, all these Gospels were written all late. What is the reason for anybody saying the Gospels are written late? I honestly, uh, I have, the, here's all I've heard. They must have been written late because of the high Christology. And it takes a while for a man, who is a mere man, to become a god. And so this happens over time. I have, I honestly have never heard any other arguments why we should date the Gospels late rather than early. The irony here, though, is 
is you've got Paul in the book of Romans, which is what, mid-50s, stating that Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God through the resurrection. So you've got a resurrected man who is the Son of God in the first couple of verses of the book of Romans, which is unquestionably Pauline, and written in, in the 50s or maybe before. So it didn't take a long time to get a high Christology. It was right there in the earliest writings. And actually in Galatians, which is Paul's first book, you've got same kind of language. So I don't know why they late date. I, I honestly don't. All these years I don't have a, a good reason. When this, what I've just offered you in the book of Acts, seems to make perfect sense. And by the way, none of these books, not a single one of them, talk about the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Uh, and this is why um, uh, I'm trying to think of the author's name, but not just one, but others. Oh, I can't think of it. The the dating of the Gospels. Oh, what's his name? But he's not. He's not a conservative. Thinks that every single book that was uh, a New Testament book was written before seventy, because the, there is no record of the destruction of the temple which is one of the most incredible things that happened in the first century, 70 A.D. So um, those are all good reasons to early date these writings. I just see any good reason to late date it. I'll think of that name sometime here before too long. All right, time for a break? Maybe I can figure out what that name... <laughs> I have the book. I'm the dating of the Gospels, but I can't think of the guy's name. All right, let's take a break, and we'll have more calls when I return on Stand to Reason. Hey, friends. Would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, and our newest apologist, John Noyes, are available, both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule them today. Our speakers can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read their bios and learn more about the topics they cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, or John today. All right, well, my forehead is a bit bruised from banging against the wall trying to knock loose this name. 
just feels like it's right there, and I can't shake it out. Uh, the author of the book, who is a critical scholar, who argues that um, all of the New Testament books must have been written before 70. Now, Amy just raised the question with me, well, then why John? There seems to be good reason to think that John was written after that. Even conservative scholars would say that late first century for John, and John doesn't mention it. I say, okay, there can be an exception, but that nobody mentions it? Especially Luke, because in Luke's gospel, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. If that had already happened, don't you think Luke would say, and by the way, Jesus said this was happening, and it got fulfilled? So I don't know about John. Maybe John's an exception. Ooh, I almost had that name. Just sitting there. Maybe John's an exception. Uh, but you can't say everybody's an exception. <laughs> Every gospel? No. It's almost there. Okay, so let's take another open mic call. Uh, we got Luke Adams. We got Dean French. And uh, <clears throat> okay, let's take Wesley Gilmers. Okay, because uh, I'm writing about this issue right now, and we'll see what does Wesley have to say. Wesley. Good morning, Greg. My yep. question to you is, can we trust the Bible? There are a lot of things that the Bible says that sometimes cause me to doubt. And I've recently just begun thinking about that as a problem. So, yeah, I'd appreciate an answer. An, an answer. <laughs> Thank you very much, sir. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you, Wesley. And um, this is one of those times when I wish that we were chatting together because there are a couple of, for me, with the question, a couple of ambiguities, like, can we trust the Bible? Uh, I would want to know more about what you mean by trust the Bible. Now, my presumption is that the Bible is giving us accurate information about God or the things that it records there are truly God's Word, uh, and not just some make-me-up of a tribal people who thought they heard from God but didn't really. And uh, there are a lot of things it says that cause me to doubt, or sometimes cause me to doubt, is what uh, Wesley said. And uh, I'm not sure what those things are. So if I had more clarity on what those particular things are, then I could maybe speak to them. Now, I have a suspicion about some of them. All right. Um, and they, they fall in two different categories. One is a category of kind of fantastic things, and the other is a category of what appear to be immoral things. Fantastic things would be a, a worldwide flood, however that's construed, global or the world that then was, as Peter put it in Second Peter, and so that might be a local flood that 
consumed all of the human inhabitants of the world at that time, save for eight. So that might be a fantastical thing. It might be a floating axe head, Elijah. We, it might be the sun going, uh, standing still. Um, there might be the shadow going backwards up the steps with Hezekiah. I mean, there's all kinds of things that, wow, that really happened. <clears throat> and to those kind of things, I just have to say, we live in a magical world. The, the, the world of the Bible is a magical world. And I'm using the word advisedly here, uh, magical, because I, 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 I don't mean like it's hocus-pocus. I mean that it's an, it's, if it's, there's a supernatural element to this world. It isn't just molecules clashing in the universe. There are, there are invisible forces at work. And God is the prime one who made it all and can do whatever he wants. And so all of these fantastical kinds of things are only fantastical if you are somewhat committed to a materialistic view of the universe, but they are not fantastical. If you take seriously, if one takes seriously, I'm not beating up on Wesley here, but if one takes seriously the worldview of the Bible. Now the question is whether that worldview taken as a whole, which includes the supernatural, is sound or not. If Jesus rose from the dead, and there's tremendously persuasive historical evidence that he did, I, I, um, uh, what's the word? I'm going to summarize that in the story of reality. Four facts is the chapter I think that I titled. It's a it's a uh, minimal facts approach to demonstrating the resurrection of Christ. Well, if that happened, then people do rise from the dead. And if people can rise from the dead, and God can direct that and cause that to happen, then he can cause all kinds of things to happen that are fantastical. That doesn't mean they did happen. I think they did. But I, all I'm arguing is, is that this is a worldview question. And if one's worldview is largely materialistic, then all of these other things are just not going to make any sense. It's like when Christopher Hitchens debated Jay Richards. I watched the debate just a couple of weeks ago because it had something to do with what I was writing. And Chris Hitchens asked Jay Richards, the Christian, uh, author of Privileged Planet, co-author, uh, whether he believed in the virgin birth and the resurrection. And Jay said, yeah, he did. And so... Chris Hitchens said, I rest my case. Because Chris Hitchens is an atheist and a materialist, and in his world, those kinds of things can't happen. But of course, what kind of world we actually live in was the nature of the debate, which means his statement was circular. He was already assuming the world instead of demonstrating that world and using that his assumption as evidence against, against Jay Richards. So, um, so you have to decide what kind of world do we live in. And if we live in a magical world, then magical things can happen, and they can't be dismissed out of hand. Okay, then there's another category of thing, and that is things that look immoral. Now, I don't have enough time to deal with this now, and I'm not even sure that that's on, on your list here that cause you to doubt. doubt. But let's say the, the uh, destruction of the Canaanites by Joshua, and other things that are kind of similar. And I'm just going to say two things quickly here. Um, 
and <laughs> my phone is buzzing. Why is it doing it? This is some kind of alert I'm getting, and I'm on Do Not Disturb, but the government still wants to get through and buzz me. Conserve energy now, really. That was important enough to interrupt my radio show, right? Um, and the the uh, the concern here is that when that God seems to be guilty of genocide or ethnic cleansing, when all the people, the men, women, and children, are to be destroyed. Okay, here's I'll just tell you very very quickly two things to keep in mind here because I do have a caller and we can get to uh, and chat with here in the closing moments of the show, and that is um, that. The language that is employed there is characteristic of ancient Near Eastern military hyperbole. And think, for example, of the sports page. We massacred them. We wiped them out. We're going to absolutely, um, you know, uh, destroy them. We're going to clean the car, whatever. You know, well, these are the ways people talk when they mean com complete victory. And this is what we see in those passages. Because there are times when the, the, the language is used of women and children being destroyed, when there weren't even women and children involved. So these are hyperbolic ways of talking about uh, complete victory, utter defeat of the enemy, and a displacement of the enemy. All right? Secondly, is part of the reason is because these were really bad people. And the kind of debauchery that they participated in for hundreds of years while God patiently waited for them to change their minds, and Nineveh was an example of one culture that did, and God relented of the punishment. But part of what that included was not only sexual debauchery, but human sacrifice, not just humans, children. And children, sometimes thousands at a time. It's the kind of thing that I think if, say, Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins had countenanced, then uh, they would say, how could there be a God if he doesn't act? Well, God did act, and he brought judgment against those people for the terrible things that they were doing. Okay, so those are two things that might provide some perspective uh, about about uh, about maybe what is causing concern for you or doubt for you. So with that, I'm going to move on to Sean in Little Elm, Texas. And Sean, sorry about the short shrift, but I wanted to jump in and give you about four or five minutes here. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate that. Sure. Uh, yeah, I understand you're going to be down in Baylor uh, on Thursday. I will I'm be. down and see you. Oh, okay. Do you know if there's a cost to that? No, I don't think there's any cost. It's the in the evening is the Oso Logos, which is the Christian group on campus, and usually it's just a meeting and they have a speaker. They probably aren't. I, I have no knowledge of any cost. Okay, thinking about bringing the group down. Okay, if they're if they're available. Great. So uh, we meet weekly with a group of students in our home. A couple weeks ago, we discussed truth yeah. and knowledge. Mm -hmm. JTB uh, theory of knowledge was what we discussed. Where there was a hang-up is uh, understanding the difference between truth as part of the theory, meaning knowledge has to be true in order mm -hmm. for it to be knowledge, and the confidence that we can have in 
something being true. Right, right. And this the is a justification trick- component, and maybe you could speak to that. Yeah, maybe, I can. And this, is, this is called the JTB um, characterization of, of, uh, of knowledge, that in order to say that you know something, the thing that you say you know has got to be true. But you have to have a good reasons to believe it so. It's not just a lucky guess, okay? And there are actually some problems with that definition, but it's the best they've got right now, and so they use the JTB. And one of the problems is a problem that I noticed right when I first was exposed to this many years ago, and it's the one you're pointing out. Well, how do you know if it's true or not? If it's mm-hmm. actually true, because you may call it knowledge and it may not be true, you might be mistaken, even though you call it knowledge. And that's kind of, there's a fudge factor there. Okay. So what they're trying to do is capture a number of things that have to do with knowledge, what's got to be true. So, well, how can I say I actually know it if there's no way for me to get out of the epistemic process to be absolutely confirmed that what I'm believing is the case? Right. And there's no way to do that. Okay. Oh, <laughs> now, some things are, are self-evidentially true. Okay. Right. I think, therefore, I am. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Descartes famously. That seems to go through. Uh, but there are other things we may have very good justification for, and it still could be mistaken on. Okay? So even though we would call it knowledge, it actually ain't knowledge because it ain't true. But we just don't right. realize it. And so this is where, you know, we are. there's latitude in the way we use our language. I could say, I know that God exists. That is a function of knowledge. How do I know that? Because the justification is so strong. Is it possible I'm mistaken? Sure, it's possible I'm mistaken about almost everything that I say I know, and that's true with regards to everybody. But just because it's possible I'm mistaken doesn't mean it's justified to think that I'm mistaken. And that little line I got from J.P. Moreland many, many years ago. But it's stuck, and he's right. And so what we have to do is look at the justification that we have for a belief. If the justification is really, really, really good, then we are justified in thinking that our view is actually true. And if it's actually true, then we have knowledge. So if our justification is solid, even if it's possible we're being mistaken, it is appropriate to call uh, our, our beliefs, examples of knowledge. And so really uh, that's the way I would approach at, it. So we're really not getting at some ph- philosophical standard that's black and white. Well, not ultimately black and white. I think there are okay. some things, yes, that are. And yeah, uh, like the, and when you say black and white, they're, they're of a certitude. But even uh, uh, maybe necess- certitude is psychological. Necessity is, philo- is uh, metaphysical. Okay? Right. So certain things are the case of necessity. So if I'm thinking, then I do exist. That's a matter of necessity. But there are a lot of things that we're certain about that we're wrong on. So I want to be careful even about the language that we're using here. Um, some things, necessity... Um, we can demonstrate necessity regarding, okay, but most things we can't demonstrate necessity on. We 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 have certitude, hopefully based on good reasons. There are a whole bunch of people who think they know stuff and they have no good reason to know that. Right, and you find that out by talking to them. Yes, but uh, when you have 
when you have really good justification, then your beliefs rise to the level that can properly be called knowledge, even though it's possible you could be mistaken. Okay. Good. Make sense? Hey, we we'll did. go with that. We'll All right. That. Well, <laughs> hey, uh, my hat tip to you for uh, your group and doing a good job uh, with them. If I see you on Thursday, uh, which is two days from now, then remind me that we had a conversation about JTB. Okay. okay. And did you Hold think, there. say, you're going to thinking about bringing your, your team there, your, your students there with you? Yep, all those that are willing to make the drive with me. Oh, that's great. How how far, Little Elm, how far is that from Waco? Uh, we're just on the north side of Dallas. Oh, so we're so not that's... too far from Cottonwood Creek Church. Oh, okay, that's where reality's at. Well, we're going right. to, uh, uh, well, that's a two-hour drive from Waco at least, though, maybe two and a half. Probably. So. Okay, Might well, be. thank you. Yeah. I'm flattered that you come down. Hope to see you then, Sean. Thank you. Oh, quick question. Are you still in Wisconsin? No, I'm not in Wisconsin now. I'm, I'm back in Southern California, unfortunately, oh, you're gonna miss where it's like 95 changing. degrees out and not uh, 48 last night in Wisconsin. Nice and cool oh. and firewood, you know, time anyway. Right. All we right. Got a place, family's got a place in Land O'Lakes, and so I know how beautiful it is up yeah, there. Yeah, it's great. Hey, thanks for, uh, right. thanks for your call. Okay, Sean, got to go. That's it for this show, friends. Great Cocoa here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye.